to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the recent protest happening inside Iran and what's really happening there. Also going to be uh, uh, touching on the need for social housing here in Washington, D.C. and in these United States and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Dr. Syed. Mohammed Morandi, Professor of English Literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Dr. Morandi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. Morandi, over the last few weeks, we've been seeing protests uh, uh, happening inside Iran that centered around uh, the death of a woman named uh, Masan Amini. And there's a, a, a couple of different uh, narratives that were going around about uh, just what happened to Masa Amini. I mean, um, uh, certainly the narrative we hear in the U.S. and the West is that uh, she was in the custody of a force people are calling the morality police and uh, died or perhaps was killed over the issue of her hijab. Uh, there's another narrative that said that uh, Amini actually died as the result of some uh, a medical condition or episode. I know there was a video that was going around purporting to show her uh, fainting or something. I'm not sure of the validity of that. But even beyond the uh, immediate issue of Masa Amini, I mean, to be frank, her whole situation almost seemed to get lost in in sort of a, a, a broader uh, a kind of attack on the Iranian government. And what raised my eyebrow, Dr. Morandi, was how quickly and how intensely uh, the corporate press in the U.S. and the West uh, latched on to the protests in Iran. It definitely reminded me of uh, how the press reacted to protests in uh, uh, Cuba and Hong Kong. It, it, I just don't think it's a coincidence uh, that uh, uh, Washington tends to seize upon these protests in countries that they've targeted. But to begin to really break down this uh, situation, Dr. Morandi, I actually wanted to begin with this issue of the morality police. And I mean, what what is this uh, uh, force, this institution in Iran? Uh, uh, what are they in place to do? I, I mean, you know, what what is their role there? In Iran, the let's say the indecent exposure laws are different than in the West. It's a more religious and conservative society. So women are, and men are supposed to wear, uh, to cover their bodies uh, more than they are expected to do so in the United States or in Europe or in other parts, many other parts of the world as well. And uh, the reason, I mean, in the West, they like to say the objective is to control women. I think that's a very Orientalist and, and uh, to be frank, racist way of viewing it. Whether they agree with it or not, the reason is they uh, believe that the sexualization, the objectification, the commodification of the, especially the female body, is something that has been carried out in the West, and Iran does not want or 
as a as a Muslim society does not want to see in Iran. Now, the laws on let's call it indecent exposure, for lack of a better term, uh, are not very strict. It's not as if like women have to cover up themselves in black and all that. Women in Iran wear very colorful colorful clothing. They some some women don't wear the headscarf or they carry it around their neck, and um, it's not as if it's strictly enforced. It's not as if you know women are uh, dress in the proper let's say hijab as um, the law would let's say promote or religion would promote, but. Uh, but in any case, that's the objective of the law, whether they agree with it or not, or some in Iran are opposed to it, some of Iran in Iran support it, some in Iran support it, but they think it has to be enforced in a very different way. These are debates that have been going on far before this incident. But uh, the fact is that women in Iran are not disempowered. You know, my own boss at the University of Tehran, the dean of my faculty, is a woman. And for the last 19 years that I've been a, uh, an academic at the University of Tehran, 15 or 14, 14 or 15 uh, years, or 14 or 15 of those years, the dean of my faculty have been women. The deans, the different deans have been women. So it's not as if women in Iran are sitting at home or being forced to, or being marginalized. We have women pilots, we have women helicopter pilots, we have women airline pilots, we have women taxi drivers, we have women truck drivers, we have women professors. We've um, the former minister of health uh, in Iran, which is the second largest ministry in the government and probably the most complicated because it has medical education, students, professors, and it also has the whole healthcare network under its authority. Uh, the previous head of this ministry was a colleague of mine from my sister university, the University of Tehran Medical Sciences. So it's a very different world in Iran from what one would think it is when covering Iran or reading about Iran in the Western media. And I would like to also point out that uh, when uh, there is a huge, huge anti-Iranian Persian media industry in the West, it is unlike anything else that exists in the world. Iran is the only country that has a massive anti-Iranian media that is funded by Western governments and, and the Saudis and, and others. But it's basically it's basically based in, in London, this media. Extremely hostile. As soon as Mahsa died, the BBC Persian, Iran International, BOA uh, Persian, and other media outlets immediately said that she was murdered, that she was beaten and battered to death. And that's what created the unrest from the very beginning because people were told that she was tortured to death. I thought there was, I personally thought that there was probably some sort of pre police brutality because they were saying it in such a definitive way. And then, of course, later on, after a couple of days, the footage came out showing that when she exited the police van, she was not in cuffs. She was not holding her head. She did not appear to be in any pain whatsoever. And then she entered a hall sitting there with other people. She stood up, spoke to someone, and then suddenly collapsed. And the, in the autopsy, uh, uh, 19 uh, 
physicians, well-known physicians, uh, who uh, saw all the evidence. They said that she was not physically harmed. And later on also, the uh, Iranians released footage of when her father uh, went to see the body. They, they asked him to touch the body, to look at the body, the, the, her head, and uh, see if there's anything that he feels to be suspicious. And he, he said, no, there's nothing there. And they asked him to do it again. And he said, no, it's enough. That I know nothing's happened. And he said that she had an operation on her brain when she was eight. And then, of course, the Western Persian media denied all this. And they fabricated information about say, saying that she had never been to a hospital, but it came out that she had a massive uh, operation on her brain. So the West Persian media in the West carries out misinformation and is basically trying uh, has been trying to push people to go to the streets, and they've also been promoting violence. People on BBC Persian, Iran International, Iran International being a Saudi outlet, have been telling people to get violent, to attack the police. If this was in English, and this was about a, U, a Western gov, uh, country, Ofcom in the UK would have shut down these t- TV channels within hours. They wouldn't, because these are all breaking, they're breaking the law. And then you also have Persian media, satellite TV, mind you, as well as um, um, online, uh, on, uh, people online, uh, from, especially in Albania, where the MEK terrorist organization is based. You have, they have a huge cyber army. They have a huge thousands of trolls in Albania that are funded by NATO. These people are, uh, are not only do they spread misinformation, through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and so on, but they also teach people how to use weapons against the police. And they also encourage attacking the police. And so do satellite TV channels. They they teach people how to make Molotov cocktails and what police stations to attack. And none of these, and and, uh, big tech does nothing about this. In fact, they amplify them through their algorithms. So there's a huge media uh, campaign against Iran that Western countries have been engaging in for the past few weeks. Yeah, and I really appreciate you uh, laying out all of that uh, uh, context, Dr. Morandi. And, you know, I agree because I noticed a similar thing in that, uh, you know, the the, the U.S., it, it seems perfectly fine with protesters attacking police if those police are situated in a country that the U.S. considers an enemy. But, I mean, uh, when we look at, you know, the billions of dollars, for instance, that uh, U.S. President Joe Biden has given to the police and, you know, are wanting to put at least 100,000 more police on the street and all those sorts of things. I mean, not even for a moment would they tolerate uh, such a thing here. And, uh, you know, I appreciate how you raise the, the uh, I guess, diversity of opinion in Iran that, that exists uh, around this because, I mean, like any country, right, that there's a diversity of opinions on any number of issues. But, I mean, what we're told in the West is that the Iranian government is so uh, uh, suppressive and that it's basically like a theocratic 
democratic fascist state uh, that that sort of thing isn't really allowed. And uh, this 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 concept of anti-Iranian media, I think, is really important. And I know here in the U.S., one of the main uh, voices that we tend to hear whenever uh, issues get hot with Iran is one uh, Masi Alinejad, uh, an Iranian-American journalist who works for uh, Voice of America, a platform that literally has its roots in uh, uh, the CIA. And so since this issue has sort of become a kind of, uh, frankly, to me, fraudulent uh, Western uh, kind of liberal uh, feminist type of movement that sort of that sees itself as the protector of Iranian women and things like that. And, you know, we see videos of women cutting their hair supposedly in solidarity and things like that. And so I don't think it's any uh, coincidence that someone like Amasi Alinejad is sort of mobilized to almost be a kind of face uh, for the plight of uh, Iranian women, and, and or is it the first time we've seen her used in this way? And so how do you see uh, the role of someone like uh, Amasi Alinejad uh, sort of factoring into uh, popular understandings of not only this uh, particular incident in Iran, but in terms of the goings-on inside the country in general? I think that's really the problem that the United States and the Europeans have. And that is that they promote people who have zero credibility in the country. In fact, the only people that see her as credible are the rioters. And, of course, the riots have ended. At least we haven't had seen anything for the last week. But the rioters were very violent, but they were small in number. Initially, during the first couple of days, we had relatively, not huge protests, but we had protests across the country because people were told that Massa was murdered. And then when the evidence didn't show any of that, these died down, and then we had, instead of protests, we had riots. So we have to make a distinction between the protests and riots. And the riots were very violent, but the people in Iran don't support the riots. So there were massive anti-riot demonstrations across the country, but they're never shown in the Western media. But, you know, it's, it's quite obvious if, if the if, if people in the West look at it objectively, if the Islamic Republic of Iran was illegitimate in the eyes of the population, then why was it that when General Soleimani th- was murdered roughly three years ago by Trump, that we saw millions of people on the streets of Tehran and millions of people in funeral processions as the body was moved to Tehran in other cities? That's... It doesn't add up, but a lot of Western analysis, whether in the media or in think tanks or Western governments, it's based upon wishful thinking. They believe what they want to believe. So they'll interpret what they see as fulfilling what they expect. And so it's a sort of fulfillment of their expectations, but it's not real. And that leads, of course, to, uh, to uh, a false understanding of Iran, a flawed understanding of Iran, and miscalculation, because Western uh, leaders will calculate based upon uh, something that does not exist, and that will only cause greater harm for them and for everyone concerned. But the people who create this image for the West these people have a vested interest. You have over 20,000 people, so-called Iranians, who are paid with U.S. taxpayer money and Western taxpayer money to, to, to blog against Iran, to 
to to you know to work as a cyber army uh, as a as a cyber soldier against Iran. These people, each of them, work day and night with tens of accounts on Twitter and um, Facebook and Instagram. And uh, they work day and night against Iran. There are thousands of people in Albania. You have thousands of people working in BBC Persian, VOA Persian, Iran International, Manotou, and a host of other media outlets. And then you have all these websites. All of them are funded by Western governments, and all of them come uh, are paid through by taxpayer money. So when you have, and then these people fund American senators, MPs from European countries former government officials, current government officials to, to participate in their events. So imagine the sheer amount of money that is involved. So they have a vested interest in trying to show Western leaders that these policies work. Because if Western leaders feel that these policies work, they will continue funding this huge army of Persian speakers, or in some cases not even Persian speakers, to continue waging war against Iran, whether it's media warfare or, of course, the, the many terrorists that the United States supports alongside Iran's borders with Pakistan and northern Iraq. So this is an industry. It's, it's not unlike what kept the United States in Afghanistan. A lot of the reason, the real, the, one of the major reasons, at least one of the major reasons, if not the most important reason why the United States was in Afghanistan was because a lot of people were making money out of it. It was a lost war. We all know about the Afghanistan papers. We all know that the American government knew that they'd lost the war years ago, but they continued to remain in Afghanistan, at least partially because of the huge vested interest that so many people had in, in this war. They were making money. They were contractors and others were making a big kill out of the continued occupation. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, uh, looking at some of the most recent updates around this, Dr. Mirandi, I mean, uh, the European Union has uh, frozen the uh, assets of uh, about 11 people inside Iran as a result of uh, the protest, including two police officials, uh, Mohammed Rostami and, and uh, Haj Ahmad Mizrahi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And, you know, it just feels like this is not a coincidence, right? Because this is also happening within the context of of ongoing issues uh, between the United States and Iran as it pertains to the nuclear deal, something that we discuss with you here on the show fairly often. And so, you know, for me, it's hard not to see um, the mass attention that uh, uh, was given to these protests, which seem to dissipate pretty quickly, as I, I don't believe that the protests themselves are still uh, going on. But this honestly just felt like an opportunistic kind of, uh, of Washington and its junior partners seizing upon uh, uh, this issue to amplify Iran as some kind of, you know, a human rights abuser as a state and thereby justifying uh, uh, Washington's ongoing aggression towards Tehran. And and so for me, that just really seems like what this all was really about and not that the U.S. was just so concerned about this one woman dying in Iran, because to me, if they cared that much about women in Iran, children in Iran, people in Iran, then it wouldn't have these sanctions on the country and be doing all these sorts of things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. The sanctions have killed many women and children and innocent civilians. They've targeted Iran's ability to import medicine or 
uh, supplies to produce medicine. I, the list goes on. There's so much that they've done to harm women and children in this country that I could go on forever. But it's interesting. They've confiscated uh, confiscated the assets of these people, these Iranians, but they have no assets in Europe. They don't have bank accounts in Europe. They don't live in Europe. They don't go to Europe. Iran has already been sanctioned. They, maximum pressure means maximum pressure. It means that there's nothing more they can do. No matter what new sanctions they impose, it means nothing because it's already been done before. So the Europeans and the Americans no longer have any leverage against Iran because they've used all their leverage. And what they've done is that they've basically taught the Iranians that you have to go find friends in the global south. For Iran's relations with Russia, with China, with India, with Central Asia, with its neighbors, it has evolved tremendously over the past few years. Not only has Iran learned to rely more on itself, but it relies, but it also relies more on trade with non-Western countries, and it has decreased its communications and contacts and trade with Western countries. And when Western countries engage in, in uh, a campaign, a media campaign against the country, and they, and they fund rioters and they fund terrorist organizations and they use media to create misinformation and hatred and sectarian hatred and, and ethnic hatred in the country, then that only makes Iran, the, the, the decision makers in Iran, more, un, more cautious about any type of engagement with the United States and Europe. And in my opinion, much of this has to do with what the Americans and the Europeans are doing in Iran, even though it's failed. These, uh, these riots. But what I think they've been trying to do is try to use these uh, as a means to gain more concessions from Iran at the nuclear negotiating table. But what it does it, is that it, it, is, it, it creates a more difficult situation for Europe and the United States because it only makes Iran mistrust the West more than before. And therefore, at the negotiating table, they're going to be even more cautious about uh, giving any form of uh, concession to the United States or, or its allies. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Morandi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the U.S. government's current and historic economic war against Europe. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming, again with John Marciano, and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Definitely. And of course, Jeremy, uh, here recently, uh, I believe it was actually late September when we saw uh, the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, uh, which uh, was scheduled to begin moving natural gas from Russia to Germany. And while there's been no sort of official declaration for uh, the culprits, I think that uh, many people have an eye on uh, the U.S. as it wouldn't make sense for Russia to bomb its own uh, 11 billion dollar pipeline. And I think worth noting is that uh, back in February of this year, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, basically promised to end uh, that same Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, saying that if Russia invaded Ukraine, then, quote, there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. And uh, when pressed uh, for details, Biden simply replied, I promise you we will be able to do that. And I feel like this is all part and parcel of, you know, uh, a, a history and a trajectory of U.S.-directed economic war towards the Russian Federation, the Soviet Union before it, and to much of Europe. So I was hoping you could help us understand, Jeremy, both uh, of that history and how it connects to uh, what we're seeing today. Uh, Sure, yeah. I mean, during the Cold War, the U.S. had waged economic war on the Soviet economy. Uh, Among other things, it was a revelation in 2004, it was feeding contaminated software that caused a, gig- a gigantic explosion of the Siberian gas pipeline in 1982. Uh, so that's just one example uh, that came to light of what I guess we call economic terrorism or economic war. And, you know, this war uh, is really a war also on Europe. Yeah, there's a book uh, that I can recommend to viewers and uh, listeners called The American Trap by Frederick Pierucci. And he recounts his own experience uh, where he was basically uh, blackmailed and used as bait. Uh, He was uh, an executive with Alstom, which is a prominent French power company. And there was kind of a scheme to get Alstom uh, under the control of General Electric. And they, they, uh, you know, accused uh, him of of fraud uh, and some kind of uh, crime where he was basically just following company protocol. And it was the, the the power company's operation in Indonesia, which under the Suharto dictatorship uh, in the late, you know, that lasted for many years, uh, you know, by the decline of corruption in Indonesia. So almost any company operating in Indonesia would uh, engage in some kind of bribery. And so they targeted him specifically so that they could threaten the top executive in Alstom uh, with prosecution, and, and then that would basically force them to sell part of the company to General Electric, which could take over, you know, the French and European markets. So that's just uh, another example. Yeah, if you read that book, uh, it details what happened in that case, but it exemplifies these kind of uh, methods, which are very dirty, kind of almost like kind of a gangster method, you know, using blackmail or sabotage of pipelines to try and advance U.S. corporate interests. But with the case of the pipeline, you know, U.S. liquefied natural gas, there was an article in Bloomberg recently uh, saying how uh, U.S. Uh, liquefied natural gas suppliers are seeing a huge opportunity in the European market because of the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. And they're already starting to cash in, uh, although for Europeans, the cost of gas through the U.S. suppliers is much more expensive. That's contributing to the crisis there. So uh, the people don't benefit, but it, it's to the benefit of U.S. corporations and the methods are very violent ones and vicious ones. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I feel like when we talk about this history, I mean, it just shows how, 
you know, choreographed, how orchestrated uh, uh, so much of this is. And what we don't see uh, in the U.S., I think, is uh, the impact. I mean, without question, uh, uh, people in the U.S. are not generally aware of this history. We're, we're all very purposefully propagandized and kept ignorant uh, of this history in order to give the system itself um, uh, uh, legitimacy. But, I mean, you know, even in terms of uh, how this uh, uh, pipeline itself, the Nord Stream 2, uh, had been attacked. I mean, when we look at the uh, the presence of, uh, you know, U.S. military ships like the Kearsarge and things like that, I mean, you know, it all sort of, I think, nudges towards uh, some kind of involvement towards uh, uh, Washington. And so, I mean, from your perspective, Jeremy, especially given how things are escalating with uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, which, of course, is the broader context of this pipeline, I mean, why would the U.S. go uh, for, you know, this kind of move if, you know, understanding about how it could basically, you know, make things worse, given the moment. Well, it underscores the point about, you know, corporations, that these are not moral entities in any way. Uh, there was a book, uh, I think, by the same author, Noam Chomsky, you know, Profit Over People, and really profit above else. They'll use any method, including yeah, potentially trigger, uh, triggering a nuclear war uh, to, uh, you know, advance their own bottom line. And they basically have hijacked government policy for their own agenda. And yeah, again, it was reported in the business news, like Bloomberg and other business news, that these U.S. liquefied natural gas suppliers uh, are poised to make a huge uh, profit and you know, a huge amount of money uh, supplying Europe uh, this year uh, to replace the loss of you know, Russian supplies. And we're talking you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, at stake. So I'll do anything, yeah, even risk a nuclear war. Uh, to get that money, and I don't know if that's human nature, but certainly the economic system we're now living under, where greed would triumph in that way, and people would use such uh, moral methods, yeah, basically taking over the government to serve their own purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, in terms of how things move forward from there, I mean, uh, what do you see as sort of the, the, the rippling effects or the impacts that, you know, this kind of economic warfare has uh, politically and otherwise? Well, the Pierucci book shows how it helped compromise France's own national sovereignty because Alstom, his company, was involved in the production of uh, nuclear-powered uh, ships and submarines, and now those are you know now taken over. That production is taken over by an American company, uh, and that really compromises France's sovereignty. That their military uh, being developed and uh, built by American companies, and we certainly won't, wouldn't want that in the United States. Uh, to have you know, our key military uh, ships and equipment being built uh, by foreign entities, uh, which makes us more dependent on them uh, and their policies. Uh, and leaders, yeah, generally, again, are not uh, operating necessarily independently uh, of these corporations or, or foreign power, foreign corporations are taking over their economy. So that's one consequence for numerous countries. And, yeah, as you discussed, the, the situation with Russia uh, if this indeed was an American attack, uh, it's, it's another example uh, where Russia, I mean, is, is just being uh, attacked, uh, you know, directly. I mean, they see it as a direct attack on their country, and this could lead to world war, uh, certainly an escalation of the current conflict in Ukraine, which has already cost, uh, you know, tens of thousands of lives. And both countries are now on high nuclear alert now. And you have American government officials, and you know, the head of STRATCOM, when he was testifying 
before Congress said he was prepared, he was preparing his forces to launch a nuclear strike on Russia. Uh, so we're in a very dangerous moment in history uh, where these kind of policies that are driven by you know, corporations and greed are leading to a potential world war, a nuclear war that could kill millions, not just thousands that have already died. So it's, it's a very dire situation. Yeah, that's a fact. We definitely are in in a dangerous situation here as it pertains to the war in Ukraine. And also we see how Washington is maneuvering with China seemingly to try to do um, uh, uh, the same sort of thing. And it it just brings me to a point, Jeremy, that uh, we discuss basically daily here on By Any Means Necessary about how, you know, really uh, the only real uh, way that we're going to be able to uh, achieve peace, both in this particular situation and I think around the world is for there to be a kind of organized effort from below, really uh, fighting, you know, for peace and against war and against imperialism, as we see that uh, those at the top uh, seem uh, hell-bent on uh, uh, intensifying things and increasing this danger. I agree. And I think we also have to rethink our economic structure and, and bring back in you know, a socialist idea to nationalize the industry uh, as a way of preventing uh, corporations from hijacking government policy for their own purpose. And we see the danger in, in the escalation of this conflict, how, how war profiteering can lead to uh, not just uh, you know, small-scale wars, but the actual world and even nuclear war. So it's threatening all of humanity. Uh, so this, this economic system really is insoluble on top of other crises it's causing, like uh, environmental crisis, uh, which is also getting way out of control. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the movement for social housing. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Will Merrifield, the director of the Center for Social Housing and Public Investment. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And Will, uh, we've spoken with you a number of times on the show about uh, different housing issues plaguing the city of Washington, D.C., and indeed across the United States of America, with much of the issue uh, seemingly rooted in uh, the profit motive of housing, as opposed to treating it as a human right that it should be. And I know here in Washington, D.C., the D.C. Council recently introduced some uh, social housing legislation uh, that, you know, would, I think, have a really serious positive impact, particularly for uh, a poor working and oppressed people in D.C. Uh, uh, to be able to have truly affordable housing. And this piece is already under attack by corporations and the developers who hold incredible political sway here in Washington, D.C. And a little later, I want to get into, uh, uh, you know, uh, how this may ripple and uh, resonate with uh, 
uh, trends across the country. But to begin, Will, if you could sort of define social housing, what is that concept? Why is it needed? And how is it different from how housing in uh, D.C. is uh, sort of contended with right now? It's a great question. Social housing at its core is really pretty simple. It's the government looking at housing as infrastructure, and it's the government using public resources to build a system of high-quality, mixed-income housing for working-class people. So the way it works is, you know, there's no private developer because these buildings would be owned by the municipalities that construct them. So Governments build housing, eliminate the profit motive by cutting out the developers. And the elimination of the profit motive allows social housing to operate with maximum economic efficiency while providing 100% affordability because all rents that are paid in a social housing system, all your rent is reinvested back into the building you know, that you live in. So in a social housing system, you have a mix of incomes in the buildings. Everybody pays 30% of their income. The rents of the tenants with higher incomes offset the rents of the tenants with lower incomes. And like I said, all those rents are paid, reinvested back into the building. The rents cover the operating costs of the building. Once those operating costs are covered, you know, to make sure the building's running properly and is maintained well, then... There's a surplus, um, and that surplus is used to pay down the construction cost of the building. So what social housing is, is it's, you know, deeply affordable mixed income housing that actually pays for itself. And it's able to operate in that really efficient manner because, again, we're eliminating the profit motive. We're eliminating the private developer because when you're a tenant and you're paying, you know, $3,000 in rent each month, um, you know, the developer, the landlord takes a portion of that rent and that portion of that rent that you're paying is his profit. And that just ends up being an economic inefficiency within the housing structure. And it creates housing as a commodity um, as opposed to a right. Yeah. And, you know, that made me think about how in the Washington Post just a few days ago that they actually uh, uh, published an article talking about how one in four public housing units in uh, D.C. are vacant. Now, when you try to go to that uh, uh, article now, it, it it's not there. It says editors note the file was inadvertently published. Now, we can only speculate what happened there, but uh, I think it points to a real reality that's uh, 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 facing D.C. and I think much of the country. D.C., of course, a city that was that has grappled with uh, homelessness for years and uh, a serious issue that's been made worse by the pandemic. I mean, well, you know, you live in uh, D.C. just like I do, so I'm sure you see the uh, uh, growing the, the growth of uh, different uh, encampments and also seeing them uh, pop up in places that they were before. Meanwhile, uh, one in four uh, public housing units sit uh, 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 vacant, and I think. That has to be directly connected to this issue you're describing about uh, 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 the profit motive and in, in how uh, housing is handled in a city like D.C. And so how does that connect with the political power that uh, uh, these wealthy developers have in D.C.
see the close relationships that they have with uh, elected officials at different levels and, uh, you know, how this element really serves as the vanguard for the process we know as gentrification and displacement. That is quite literally a change the face of D.C. as we know it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in my in my opinion, the housing issue in Washington, D.C. is an economic development issue in Washington, D.C. So in Washington, D.C., like you said, developers have an enormous amount of influence and power because they're able to contribute and bundle money um, for politicians, you know, running for elected office in Washington, D.C. Not only are they, you know, contributing directly to uh, the political campaigns of these politicians. But, you know, there there hasn't been an alternative, uh, you know, described to, to try to defeat what these developers are selling. What these developers are selling is that in Washington, D.C., the only way to develop in Washington, D.C., is through these broad community revitalization projects. And what these community revitalization projects do is they give away public land and resources in parts of the community that have been traditionally um, disinvested in. And uh, they're giving away those public resources to developers who are then flooding these areas that have been traditionally disinvested in with capital, with money, to build things in these communities that the people that currently live in the communities, you know, they can't afford to live in. So a really good example of this that I bring up all the time is the Navy Yard in the Southwest Waterfront. You know, the 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 government gave away ninety five million dollars worth of waterfront property to a politically connected developer for one dollar to build luxury apartments, what's now called the wharf. And once that developer got that $95 million worth of land for $1. He turned around and parlayed that into uh, an $874 million. So almost $874 million, so almost a billion dollar loan from Goldman Sachs uh, to develop these luxury apartments um, on this waterfront property. Once that money, that Goldman Sachs money hit the streets, in effect, the land values in Southwest D.C. and waterfront soared. So then once the the land value soared all around, you know, the, the development that was to become the wharf, the only developers that could then build in that area were developers that had access to this institutional capital, you know, this money from hedge funds, from sovereign wealth funds, from from these big Wall Street investment groups, only developers that have access to that kind of global capital are then able to build once land values get corrupted like that. So what happened was that whole area in the Southwest Waterfront Navy Yard, which was once very affordable, it became deeply unaffordable because all this capital that was coming into that area was looking to invest in luxury apartments. Why were they looking to invest in luxury apartments? Because the investors behind that capital want the biggest bang for their buck. They want to maximize their profits. So we've seen huge rent spikes, huge land value spikes in that neighborhood and a displacement of people that lived in that neighborhood you know, before all this investment came in. And the government's role in this was not only to give away that $95 million worth of land 
for $1 to this developer. It was also to build roads, roads, bridges, needed infrastructure in that community. But it was built with the intention of not benefiting the people who lived in that community for years before this development happened. It was built with the intention of bringing in and attracting this new capital. So what social housing does, what a social housing model does, is very different than that is that it looks to inject capital, inject money and resources into communities that have been under-resourced, but to do so in a way that keeps people in those communities in place by building this type of deeply affordable mixed-income housing that's highly efficient, it pays for itself, and it allows people, it allows communities to develop while having the people who live in those communities be able to benefit from that development. And, and and raise, you know, just just make these communities, you know, be able to have investment that they should have had all along while, you know, not pushing out, not displacing people. Um, I think really quick, from 2003 to, I believe, 2012, there was an investigation by, I believe it was uh, WAMU, which is the local, like, NPR affiliate out here in Washington. And between those years, 2003 to 2013, the government had given away $1.7 billion in public subsidies to private developers in Washington, D.C. And it was during that same time period that the Washington Post uh, came out with a study that said 10,000 black residents had been displaced from the city. And so in this decade, when we were given all these public resources and all this public land to these developers, um, it was done, you know, with the intention of pushing people out. And uh, we saw over that time period, to back up that point, that there was uh, the elimination of half of all the affordable units in Washington, D.C., um, and a tripling of high-end units during that time frame. And that model, that economic model of giving land and resources to developers to attract capital, to remake neighborhoods and push people out, that's what we're fighting against. And what we're fighting against it with is this alternative model that's much more efficient, keeps people in place, and allows um, you know, a cooling off of this, of this rental market. Definitely. I appreciate that framing. I mean, particularly around the concept of development. I mean, that's a word that we hear all the time as it pertains to housing issues. And it's kind of a very nice, comfortable sounding word. It sounds like, you know, something that is positive and a benefit to a city. But I mean, the question we have to ask is like, well, development for who? Obviously not for uh, the poor and working people of cities like D.C. who uh, bear the brunt of these uh, type of situations. Situations. And I wanted to ask also, Will, how you see the issues, the housing issues in D.C. connected with housing issues here in this country as the cost of living continues to rise and uh, the U.S. becomes increasingly too expensive to live. Um, I wanted to read a quick piece from an article published by the uh, Center for American Proce- uh, Progress, kind of a, a liberal think tank, um, uh, from August in a piece entitled The Rental Housing Crisis 
crisis is a supply problem that needs supply solutions. And they say in part, quote, in January 2019, the United States had a shortage of 7 million affordable homes for low income renters, resulting in only 37 affordable rental homes for every 100 low income renter households. Due to these market pressures, the most economically vulnerable suffered the highest housing precarity. As a result, millions of Americans have experienced eviction, homelessness, and housing insecurity, each of which leads to financial insecurity, toxic stress, uh, poor health outcomes, poor academic achievement for children, food insecurity, and other negative outcomes. Now, uh, we could find certainly uh, some things within uh, this kind of analysis to quibble with, but I feel like what it makes uh, a clear will is just the, the serious social and human cost of the housing system in the U.S. Uh, and what that has to and how that impacts real human beings and how the issue of housing is directly connected to so many other uh, fundamental aspects of a person's life, a family's life, and a, a community's life. And so, to be frank, I think the way that housing is handled both in D.C. and in the U.S. is inhumane. It's not something that's done uh, with the interest of uh, human beings at its heart or at its core. And so, how do you see uh, the concept of social housing being able to address these deep uh, housing issues? And, and frankly, it's a human rights issue. I mean, how do you see the concept of a social housing uh, being able to uh, impact these uh, things in the U.S. as a whole? Well, social housing, the, the concept of decommodification, the concept of taking the profit motive out of housing is the only way to solve this issue. You know, for context, in 2020, you know, the value of global real estate was about $326.5 trillion dollars. And that's almost that's almost four times the global gross domestic product. So real estate is the is the most the world's most significant store of global wealth, and it's more valuable than all global equities and debt securities combined. So that is why we have a housing crisis. Huge institutional investors, like I said before, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, real estate investment trusts, they're buying up real estate and they're driving up land values. So if that type of investment it looks different in different parts of the country. In the coastal cities like New York, San Francisco, D.C., L.A., that money is investing in luxury projects, and it's driving rents just like through the roof to levels that have never been seen before and are almost, um, you know, if it wasn't such a terrible situation, it would become, you know, the amount of money that they're charging for, you know, apartments in these cities. And they're doing that because these are capital cities. So you can invest and get a bang for your buck in those, in those, in that luxury real estate market. Now in places in the Midwest, like I'm originally from Ohio, that investment looks different. They're buying up significant parts of the country in those areas. And they're elevating land values to the extent that they're making it impossible for people to be able to buy homes. And they're making people in these areas forever renters. So they're artificially inflating land values by buying things up. And then they're making people forever renters. And they believe that is, you know, a very, a very long-term 
safe return on their investment. And they're going to drive up rents in those areas as much as they possibly can to squeeze, you know, as much blood out of that stone that they can. So people, if we allow, you know, these, these big financial institutions, and if we allow the continued financialization of the housing market, then we're always going to be at the mercy of these big time, you know, conglomerates controlling housing policy and, and making rents as high as they can possibly go for them to be able to maximize profit. So what we can do is we could just as demand through political will that we're not going to stand for that. And we're going to demand that our municipalities and the federal government invest in a sane uh, approach to the production of rental housing um, that takes profit away and that builds things that are rationally and efficiently built to meet the needs of, of working class people. And, you know, it's, it's not a theoretical concept. The concept of social housing exists in different parts of the world. The most famous model is Vienna, Austria. And in Vienna, you know, it's a global city. It's a world-class city. I think it was been, it's been ranked like the best city to live in for the last seven years running. And a lot of that is because they have affordable housing there. Why do they have an affordable housing there? Because the government is invested in the building of social housing. So in Vienna, they have a population of $1.9 million. They have 220,000 units of municipally owned social housing that houses about 500,000 people. And then they have another 200,000 units of co-ops and nonprofit housing. They have 420,000 units of social housing. And what that social housing does is it competes with the private market. It, it gives renters a true public option. And so on average, people in Vienna, which like I said, is a world-class global city, host like as many world uh, forums as, as anything in, in, in the, in the, across the globe, people pay on average about 27% of their income in rent there. Um, which is far lower than, you know, you're seeing in the United States across all these, you know, especially these, these coastal cities. Um, and, you know, they're able to do that because, like I said, they're giving people a true public option. They're driving down housing costs. And it's because their government for a very long time has come at the issue of housing as um that it should be a human right. And they've coordinated a housing policy that tries to make housing a human right. Now, compare that to Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C., we have 8,000 units of dilapidated public housing, which has been allowed to fall down around its residents. And 25%, like you had talked about earlier, Sean, 25% of those units are offline because they're in such poor condition. Now, why has public housing allowed to become this? Because since the 90s and Hope 6, there's been a scheme through the federal government to privatize um, our public housing. And in Washington, D.C., there's actually a local program called New Communities that puts those federal programs almost on steroids and encourages the privatization of the social housing in this in this town, and why are they privatizing the public housing? I'm sorry, public housing. Why are they privatizing the public housing in Washington D.C. when there's this huge housing crisis? Because it's part of this broader economic policy idea that to you know 
attract investment into these communities in which these public housing complexes sit, communities that were traditionally underinvested in, that they need to knock them down and that they need to push people out and scatter people. And then they can attract investment into these communities and remake these communities in the image uh, that the developers want them remade in, which is luxury housing in Washington, D.C. So, you know, we can, as a people, either sit back and take this or we can organize around these alternative models that are highly achievable, much more efficient and that, you know, protect, you know, working class people and, you know, public encourage the investment of public resources for the public good. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Will, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 2 Zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And uh, can also hear us and check us out on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave dot digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Neffa Freeman, coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and the host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM. Neffa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, brother. Always a pleasure to join you. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Neffa. And uh, on the show, we, we've been talking a lot and following closely um, uh, the increasingly dangerous situation in Haiti following the uh, calls from the puppet regime of Dr. Ariel Henry for uh, foreign intervention. Uh, the uh, U.N. Security Council was slated to uh, hold a vote on what would be in substance a uh, another Western invasion 
of Haiti. Of course, we know uh, U.S. and Canada already dropping off uh, military vehicles and things like that to the Haitian National Police. Um, And that uh, vote has been delayed, uh, at least for the moment. And, you know, you know, I'm just wondering, sort of broadly speaking, what what you're making of things uh, in the situation of Haiti at this point. Uh, uh, Nefa with everything uh, flowing from it. I mean, I feel like there's a couple of pieces to this. I mean, we continue to see this conflation of uh, uh, the sort of mass outpouring of uh, resistance, both to uh, the Henri uh, regime and uh, to the idea of a uh, another intervention uh, or invasion into the country. That's being conflated with uh, violence from uh, different uh, armed groups within the country. And I was actually reading some uh, uh, recent remarks on this by uh, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda uh, Thomas-Greenfield, who who certainly uh, uh, echoed these uh, uh, sentiments. And so, I mean, what is your estimation of where things stand in terms of Haiti uh, uh, today, Nefa, and the uh, international community's response to it? Mm-hmm. Well, clearly they are. They feel that the people's uprising is a threat to their uh, dominance uh, over Haiti. And then decades of long decades of dominance over Haiti. I don't even think I have to recount the history now because a lot of people just know what they what the U.S. has led in doing uh, in terms of making sure that the people of Haiti don't aren't able to rec- uh, to exercise self determination, exercise sovereignty, to elect the government of their choosing. And it should be important to note that this government, because right now the the claims that um, that there's a government, the government is at requesting for assistance, international assistance, or the international community or the United Nations to step in, and that that's what is legitimizing the claim. It has to be remembered and understood that this government is illegitimate, it's unelected, it has no, uh, pol- no not even political authority to exercise, to do what it's doing. The people did not elect Ariel uh, Henry. And the pro- before then, even the pro- the government, the uh, president, uh, Jovenel Moise, who was Henri, you know, predecessor, who he was all, they were all part of the same, you know, government. That government also didn't have any constitutional uh, mandate because uh, Jovenel Moise had abolished, you know, this arrested the constitution. So right now, the Haitian people. Um, have been fed up with the continued maneuvers, particularly by the international uh, the, uh, or the the uh, Western powers, to to control their their country and to control the land, the resources, the labor, and through force and violence, um, they're tired of being imposed. Uh, you and the last military um, operation Minusta, and then later named named Bina in terms of the the acronyms, and I can't remember exactly what they. These are military. These are United Nations military forces, so-called peacekeeping forces. They come into the country. The last time they this this first uh, Minusta was first introduced in 1994. Uh, when they overwrite, uh, not long after they overthrew or disposed of the democratically elected leader uh, Bertrand Bertrand Aristide, and then they imposed this military group and, on, under the guise of a, a you know multi so-called multinational in terms of different countries that composed it to govern or to occupy Haiti. This group has been uh, you know seen to have committed lots of atrocities against the people, including raping people and and brutalizing people, killing people, and also contaminating the water supply. So there was a horrible cholera outbreak 
which now that another cholera outbreak is reemerging, but they want to blame it on the people. And, but the basically the, the the essence of the answer to your question, which is what we're making up the latest thing, des- desperate attempts, is that the people's uprisings they wanted they want to malign it as just gang violence and uncontrollable Haitian black people. It's really racist how they're doing it. Um, who need to be governed by outside. But this is not, in fact, while there is violence happening in any kind of uh, any country, which this the type, type of destabilization, uh, a precarious nature that they put is going to have some certain things happening to it that are um, in terms of people's responses. But that's not the overwhelming activity and that there have been thousands of Haitians demonstrating in the streets. There's civil society that's very organized and very, adept uh, 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 civil society of Haitian organizations that know and are ready to figure out how to solve the problems of Haiti without uh, foreign interference, and that's what they've been calling for. They know that uh, morally speaking, or even politically speaking, that the government of Haiti has no legitimacy, and that the outside world is seeing that now. They're seeing it more and more. So they, what they have to do is double down and get all of the international players along with them. And unfortunately, there still seem to be governments, even progressive leftist ones in, in Latin America, that aren't getting this thing. They need to, the, the need to explicitly denounce the neo-colonial and, and, and militarist machinations of imperialism when it comes to Haiti. They're just not, you know, the, and the right to self-determination and right to uh, sovereignty of the Haitian people, that the people of Haiti have to be if you're going to assist, then you should be assisting the masses of the people to be able to organize elections, to be able to uh, to apply the people with the fundamental needs, human needs that they need, and you know, healthcare and education and and you know, food and all those kind of things uh, that are deprived that they're deprived of at having to to you know, scurry and and survive under conditions that are you know that are really uh, antithetical to or, or not conducive to this. And so that's basically it. I think that you know. That the legitimacy and the, the the veil in terms of what's happening and what's really the uh, the the uh, cause of the crisis is the crisis of imperialism in Haiti. That's what it is, it's in, and it's being exposed. And that they are in a desperate attempt to keep the keep that uh, in control. And that the people and the, the people in Haiti on the ground are leading a very valiant um, anti-imperialist struggle. And if you look at, I mean, if we can look at Haiti. And then actually see Haiti as the entry point for anti-imperialist movement um, in Latin America, then that's a really serious blow to imperialism. And I think that's something, a lesson that uh, the other uh, people in this hemisphere need to take. Yeah. And, you know, on that note, Nephil, one of the sort of common responses that that I tend to see when um, when anti-imperialist uh, and not just anti-imperialist, I mean, Frank, as we're laying out, this is literally the will of the masses of people in Haiti, as demonstrated by their uh, consistent presence in the streets, um, is when if, if people say, well, there shouldn't be another intervention or invasion in Haiti. And some respond to that by saying, well, then what about the security situation? I mean, does this mean that we're basically throwing the Haitian people to the wolves and leaving them under um, uh, uh, the, 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 the power and, and influence and violence of these armed groups, these groups that are, you know, called gangs and things like that. And so, I mean, what, what is your response to 
to that because it seems to me that the question itself is sort of rooted in, you know, I think, frankly, like a deep misunderstanding of not only the current situation in Haiti, but the the, the history of uh, U.S. intervention and interference in Haiti, some of which you just laid out. So, so how would you respond uh, uh, to that in terms of, well, if there's no U.S. invasion, then what is to be done about what's happening in Haiti? So I think, you know, to me, that is it's almost like a, um, how you call it? I, I think a racist trope, to be quite honest. Mm. Like, you know, we're, we're there, there are, we just mentioned there are civil society organizations. They analyze their own situation on the ground. They're Haitians that have thought through things. I mean, we should, I mean, that's what should be. And they're calling for the, you know, no more intervention. That's where, you know, if you're recognizing sovereignty and all that, that's what you got. You just have no other choice. That's what you have to support. And that we also have to faith, have, have faith if we, unless we think people are some kind of, you know, incapable of understanding how to get out of their situation, we have to have faith in whatever uh, methods, plans, strategies, or, or recommendations or remedies that they can muster. And then we have to put our support behind that. That's the only solution. Anybody who thinks, I mean, to, in the face of, I mean, what, if, if you're saying, anybody who says, well, what about this? If we're well, we leaving to the wolves, well, what about the masses of the people by the thousands? I mean, if you go, we, you know, that are saying, get out, let Haiti solve its own problems. Let Haitians decide. That's the only answer. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, speaking of this issue that we were discussing a moment ago, about the uh, you know response of the international community, I'm wondering what you make of the uh, response from CARICOM, the the, the Caribbean community of uh, governments of that region. And I know that uh, the Black Alliance for Peace uh, published an an open letter to the uh, Secretary General of CARICOM, uh, uh, Doctor uh, Carla Natalie Barnett. Uh, you know, basically trying to appeal to her to uh, 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 take another route as it pertains to this issue. I'm looking at a CARICOM statement on Haiti that was published on their website uh, about a week ago on October 12th. And uh, basically they talk about how, you know, they received a letter from uh, Dr. Henri, quote, calling for solidarity and requesting assistance to alleviate the deepening humanitarian, security, political and economic crisis in Haiti. So basically endorsing uh, this call for, uh, uh, you know, an intervention there in Haiti. And I wonder what you think is motivating that, Neff. I mean, is it is it as simple as an issue of political will? Do you think that there perhaps may be some fear of uh, a backlash from the West and its allies if uh, CARICOM didn't uh, go along with uh, uh, this whole thing? Or what do you how do you all see that piece? Mm. I mean that's an interesting question. I I I be pressed to to figure out or to speculate what's in the the mind of, of some of these leaders, particularly you know the like the Caricom leadership. We we issued the the open letter to Caricom Secretary Jim. We also issued one um, that was uh, yesterday to the um, UN representatives of Russia and China. Because this thing was in the Security Council, as you mentioned earlier yesterday, with uh, Linda Thomas, uh, Sir Leaf. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sorry, I keep saying with her name Greenfield. Thomas Greenfield. Um, what did she was, you know, calling for this, but then this was, you know, for, for the Security Council to actually approve and get this, actually approve an a non UN military force 
This is what this language was. This non-UN military force would go in. So, not, so which would be worse than a UN. They wanting the UN Security Council to approve it, but the force is not even the UN force. But and so we issued this statement because because the Russia and China are permanent members of the Security Council and have veto power, have some kind of power to vote against anything. They have they, they can vote. And so we were saying they, they should, you know, they should vote against it. We didn't have any faith that any of the others were going to do it. They're all basically imperialist, you know, they're Western, Western imperialist countries. So the, the thing is that if they, you know, if they vote against it, then that would be something that would stave it off. And we believe it's not just us that wrote, uh, appealed to them. There was also other groups and individuals from inside Haiti and the Haitian diaspora that did the same. And we believe that's what not only we believe they, they actually stated that that was what led them to uh, to have to delay the vote and for them, China and Russia, not to support it. And it had caused a, a split in the in the Security Council and that they were also calling for, if anything, sanctions on the the groups that what they call what they're referring to as gangs um, inside of Haiti that are responsible for the violence. So if anything, and that there's, there's so, but anyway, to get back to to answer your question, we have to remember that the U.S., particularly when it comes to these multi uh, these uh, multilateral um, bodies like CARICOM, like the United Nations, like the OAS, you know. They maneuver in all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of backdoor dealings and maneuvers and stuff that really sometimes they cut deals that have less to do with the subject country itself and more to do with other types of agreements. And, and these people, the people who are in leadership in this country, and I'm not trying to claim anyone, I, I have to, to say that I, I wouldn't be able to say enough about, I mean, I wouldn't know enough about the particular individuals um, you know, in these multilateral countries and the institutions that are representing their countries in these institutions or, or, or formations to know what stuff might be behind it. But we know this happens. We can, you know, I haven't done the research on this particular issue when it comes to, but we know it happens. And maybe some people in Black Lives Matter, on the Africa team might be, I mean, the Haiti America's team might be able to speak better to it. But this is, you know, kind of how the world uh, is run and that we have to, and this is why Black Alliance for Peace, we call for people-centered movements. Like, for example, CELAC, the Community of Latin American Caribbean States, called for a zone of peace in 2000, and they were in, met in Havana in 2014, calling and declaring that uh, the move, move should be made for to, to establish the, uh, the Americas as a zone of peace. And the, the demilitarization, the you know, it's an anti, it was an anti-imperialist move, you know, uh, and um, and that the Black Country Peace has taken up the call and saying, well, we also want to complement that effort with uh, trying to help build a civil society component to that um, from the ground up, and not just depend on because CELAC that was the these were heads of state meeting on this, and that it's it's in, uh, it's important for those of us in the movement to try to organize on the ground in mass do the you know the be in the streets and do whatever else we have to do and and and, and challenge or uh, deal with uh, policymakers and and legislators in the various countries to say well we need the we stand for peace and we stand for self and this peace is predicated on self determination and justice and and real democracy you know not not these fake democracies like you have like here in the U.S. <laughs> we don't really get to vote on any policies or anything, just some, you know, some people who are supported by money to, to make policies for us, so to speak. 
And so, yeah, that's that's the best I can you know answer. And it's important to know that Haiti and a Caricom. I don't know. I can't remember if Caricom is part of it. Haiti basically for the last I don't know how decades since uh, uh, soon after our seat, what is being run by what's known as the core group. And these, that's who decides the policy today. This is unelected people. They're not even Haitians involved. They're France, Britain, I mean, I'm sorry, France, U.S., Canada, um, the United, a representative from the OAS, representatives from the United Nations. Um, these are, um, these are, that's what's running Haiti right now and determining the politics and the economic uh, policies um, from the outside. And so if anyone's responsible for that, those who would detractors would say, what do you do about what's happening on the ground? Well, you know, we have to change the flip the script. If what's happening is a result is the, the end result of this core group running it, then we have to abolish the core group and we have to give uh, power back to the hands of the people of Haiti. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's 2 0252-11320. I continue to be joined by Nefa Freeman. And Nefa, switching our focus a little bit from Haiti to the African continent, though still very much in the vein of U.S. imperialism, it's uh, been reported here that uh, recently at least uh, nine people uh, died and uh, new uh, with 10 others wounded and two new suicide attacks that were claimed by uh, the radical group, uh, you know, this Islamist, uh, frankly, terrorist group, uh, Al-Shabaab in central Somalia. And uh, reportedly this attack targeted a government building and uh, uh, all of these uh, uh, sorts of things. It was a large explosion and uh, uh, all the things that follow from that. And really the reason why I uh, bring this up and, you know, along with that, uh, AFRICOM confirmed that it, quote, conducted a drone strike on October 1 against the Shabab network. This is a part of an ongoing drone strike campaign that AFRICOM, the U.S., is carrying out in Somalia that doesn't get a ton of space uh, in corporate owned media here in the U.S. But I raise it more so around the issue of not only AFRICOM, but really about how what's been, you know, called the war on terror, which you know, in reality, as we know, was a, a racist war of terror on people both inside and outside of the U.S. I mean, it's being lost uh, yet again on the African continent, whereas before I think it was mainly being carried out in the Middle East and uh, parts of Asia. Now, there's a new analysis by the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, which is uh, basically a Pentagon research institution uh, focused on the African continent that said, quote, the Western Sahel has seen a quadrupling in the number of militant Islamist group events since 2019. 
The 2,800 violent events projected for 2022 represent a doubling in the past year. This violence has expanded in intensity and geographic reach. And so we, we, we have uh, this U.S. military presence, this serious, very heavy U.S. military footprint on the African continent. And that's just what, you know, we, we know publicly, right? That is uh, that says that a big part of its work is anti-terrorism work, but that you know clearly does not seem to be working. And so, I mean, understanding uh, of the role that a U.S. Africa that, that the U.S. Africa Command plays in sort of facilitating U.S. imperialist control in the African continent, Nefa. I mean, uh, to be frank, it seems like a lot of the results of this end up being pretty deadly for a lot of people who aren't even terrorist. You know what I mean? And so as such, uh, the, that, that whole thing, I mean, it feels like, I mean, obviously terrorism is a serious issue on the African continent, but it also appears to be true that Washington is using that sort of as a justification to continue its brutality against Somalia and other aspects of the continent. Mm-hmm. And it should be uh, noted that tomorrow, October 20th, will mark as it, well, this is uh, 2011, the 12th, the 11th anniversary, I think, from 2011 anniversary of AFRICOM's first operation, um, the decimation of Libya and the assassination of the leader, Muammar Gaddafi, and that which we is relevant because that operation and that act uh, waging war against a sovereign country and actually the most stable, one of the most stable countries on the continent of Africa um, um, was, is responsible for the proliferation and the spread of this uh, terrorism that we see across the continent and these groups. Um, it just sort of, it was like a hornet's nest that they beat it and just, you know, created, uh, gave, gave, um, one, they, uh, arms were spread across the Sahel, across the country. Uh, the, uh, groups were, were strengthened in terms of, uh, our, you know, Islamic people even re- resorting or going to Islam as a response to uh, uh, conditions that were m- more dire in terms of, the, you know, the, the droughts and the unresponsive governments and everything. So people look to other things and then they all look to extremist measures. And that's what we saw in Somalia. Even the Islamic Council is a result of the U.S. decimation of that. I mean, of the destruction of that 1994 invasion. You could start there with it. Like U.S. Um, invasion of Somalia. But what it seems clear that it, with all of the, even that uh, the report that you read from, no, they don't link that to the spread of AFRICOM across the continent. But it's clear that's the parallel. That's the common denominator, is that the militarization of the continent by, you know, or the westernized or imperialist militarization of the continent has exacerbated tensions and that every response, every every conflict, everything, the answer and the response is a military one. No one's dealing with um, the marginalized, marginalized communities. No one's dealing with the extraction and the, um, the exploitation of mineral wealth from the continent of Africa and these black markets that will, will, will sell diamonds or coltan or whatever else there is on the, um, on the, in the world that they get from Africa. Um, and that's how that's being tied to how that's connected to um, the economic sustenance that the, these groups use. Um, and that the end, the windfall that this represents 
for the so-called, well, I have to call them offense contractors because they're not defense contractors, but these military contractors that sell weapons and sell arms and do all this. And they may not, the claim is they may not sell directly to these groups, but if they're selling it all and selling around, then it's bound to get back in. And, and, and the U.S. has nothing. They, they don't go in and any country, whether it be we can, they, anywhere they go, they don't talk about they used to even use the disingenuously use the term peaceful solution, but now they don't even do that. It's like everything is a military one. Get you know respond so that this uh, this Al Shabaab latest Al Shabaab attack. You mentioned the October first one, but there was also one September twenty first, and they killed twenty four people. So and and that there's no way because the because of the information we get, we don't really have a way of verifying who they're. Who they are condemning as jihadist fighters or, or enemy combatants, right? They define that, and once the people are dead, we don't. There's no investigation that says who was really something or how they did it. There's none of that, you know. And the the, the organizations, like human rights organizations and organizations like Amnesty International, and, and who might or, or actually even more. What's the other one? Uh, airstrike or, or there's one that I can't remember the the name of it that's escaping me now, that do these tallies of civilian deaths, people who are killed in these drone strikes by AFRICOM, and that they are asserting that AFRICOM grossly underreports civilian deaths all the time. They've actually done interviews on the ground, asking people what compels them, what is the biggest factor in them joining an extremist group or a you know, a terrorist group or a you know, violent group. And they will say retribution or retaliation for them being their family member being killed or something like that. Just being, you know, so these, this is what's happening. We have to link the existence of AFRICOM to the dire situation on the continent of Africa, the extreme violence that seems to plague Africa um, and the, the conflicts that are in Africa. The AFRICOM and the Western powers are responsible for that. Uh, if we don't understand that and track through a historical analysis of how things unfolded, then we can only come away with the assumption that it's because, and this is what they want us to come away with, the assumption is that African people and Africans are inferior and they can't govern themselves, and colonialism was about that, it was about you know the white man's burden and civilizing the people, and we just are uncivilized. And now we've gotten hold of weapons and are just making it really bad. And that they even will tie this to what they'll say is that uh, they're also trying to protect uh, the security of the United States. You know, sometimes they'll admit that, but they really also talk about the, the interest, the national interest. When they say that, they're talking about securing the, uh, their access, the, the free access and flow of mineral resources to, um, to the, uh, to, from the U.S., from Africa into the U.S. And they don't they don't uh, hide that. Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, that's what we have to remember. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I, I don't think a lot of people necessarily grasp, even if they're aware to some extent of AFRICOM, I don't think a lot of people grasp just how uh, central and, and how uh, crucial the, the, the U.S. is in terms of uh, uh, facilitating the instability 
on the African continent. And when we see this recent slew of coups in uh, different countries, I think that's just sort of one manifestation of that. I mean, just to give one example, I was looking at this um, recent uh, uh, article by Nick Terse in Responsible Statecraft. And that the, the, the headline is Pentagon doesn't know if it trained Burkina Faso coup leader. And so this is in reference to the fact that uh, last month, uh, Captain Ibrahim Traore um, overthrew uh, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Sendaogo Demiba, another military officer that had just seized power in Burkina Faso this uh, past January. And so a responsible statecraft, you know, reached out to uh, uh, AFRICOM uh, about what was uh, going on here. And, you know, they were told by one spokesperson, quote, we do not have information for you on Captain Ibrahim Charare of Burkina Faso, while uh, AFRICOM spokesperson Kelly Kahalan, if I'm saying that correctly, said, quote, this is something we will have to research and get back to you on, saying that, quote, there did not appear to be any linkages uh, between Traore and uh, U.S. training exercises, although she basically left uh, the possibility open that uh, he could have been connected to what she described as, quote, other engagements with the U.S. And uh, Tersh reports that a part of the issue here is that the U.S. military um, doesn't keep a good records on uh, who it trains or basically what becomes of the officers that they do train or uh, 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 nor is it really keeping track of <laughs> what they're doing and if they're carrying out clues and things, uh, coups and things like that. And Kahalan also told responsible statecraft, quote, AFRICOM does not actively track individuals who've received U.S. training after the training has been completed. And I mean, that just feels deeply negligent uh, on the one hand. I think that's being kind of generous. And a part of me wonders if this sort of poor record keeping might be purposeful to maintain a level of uh, uh, plausible deniability. I mean, we can only speculate perhaps on that uh, specific aspect of it. But I mean, what's uh, uh, clear here, Nefa, is that uh, the U.S. in a number of ways contributes to the instability that we see not only in Burkina Faso, but in different countries uh, throughout the African continent and clearly uh, with very little regard or concern for the real human cost that that happens as a result. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I strongly believe that's an issue of plausible denial. I mean, they keep records on everything. Well, why would they not do that now? And But, but it's also, you know, it, and it makes sense that they would anticipate certain things like that and the instability of Africa and the, and the increasing unpopularity of the Comprador class. And so what we see right now, particularly in the French, former, because the French, uh, former French colonies and actually even neo-colonies to a large extent, you know, Mali and Guinea and Burkina Faso, uh, from the, would they, the, the coups would had a, uh, these are places that have a string of, of coup d'etats and it was came out that a lot of the, that these were people. They were also had Af, Africom training. Some even had the French Foreign Legion training, both. Um, and that, uh, and so they they're aware of that. That's even come out. Even Nick Terse himself has written about that. Um, and so this coming out now, and people like you know people like us that are doing the the media that work that people need to know. We bring you know talk about those kind of things. So in that instance. You would you would know that the authorities, the powers that be, don't want. That's not a good look for Africom, uh, for there to be these you know officers, military officers who are doing coup d'etats. 
And so I, I would think that, I mean, which doesn't mean, so with, when it, in this case with the Burkina Faso, they, we can see that they haven't been keeping the records. Right. And the other cases, they couldn't really deny because the officers were actually in, <laughs> involved in the trainings at the time. So there was no way to really deny that. And in fact, even in which one was it? Was it the, I can't remember which was Guinea, I think, that they were actually, um, I might be missing, um, that where they were actually involved in a strategic operation, at a training exercise at the time. And then when they want a break, <laughs> they went and executed a coup d'etat, you know, on the break of a giant military. So they couldn't, they can't really hide those situations. Um, but what, what we're seeing in, what you know, we're seeing in Africa when it comes to this, we're not talking about a military, uh, unique military officers of the kind of ilk that we see revolutionaries form, like, like even, um, even dare I say, Muammar Gaddafi, who was a military officer in the army, the military of the um, the Libyan uh, military during King Idris, or even Thomas Sankara, who was in the military. And these officers did, you know, they led coups and they took over countries, but then they established a revolutionary program. You know, they had, they were actually politically, they were seeking political education at some time. They were read things, you know, like Marx and all that kind of stuff. And, and even the religious texts, you know, whether it be the Bible or the Quran or whatever. And they had ideas about what was happening. It was, it was in the ethos of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. Here, um, we don't have that. That's not what exists. And so there's a, there's a, I would assert, and the fact that the Western training imbues them with certain ideas that are that, will, that arrest any uh, ability to be anti-colonialist. It's one thing to be anti-France because France is, you know, that's their immediate former colonizer, and they just, and people are uprising against, and, the, and that the compradors are so shamelessly um, exploiting and, and sucking up to the to the French that that that's where the people are, and even the officers can see it. And it's an easy one, but they don't have to have any real political education or revolutionary persuasion or understanding that well, you have to be on a program. One, you have to give up power to a civilian government because that's where the military is supposed to be for the defense of a, of a nation. And you have to be about uh, establishing a revolutionary program, redistribution of wealth and, and uh, this con- guaranteeing human needs for people. I mean, that's what it had. You have to be about socialism. So these, co- these military officers don't have any of that. And so, even while they might be anti-French, and then they, and be, but because they can be anti the colonists like France, then they can have pop, they can enjoy popular support at the time. But so those that those things will be short-lived once the people realize not much will be able to change if uh, if they can't challenge the the economic the global economic order this this new colonialism. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like so many of those dynamics that you're describing, Nefa, really sort of uh, paints a picture of why uh, politics on the African continent are what they are uh, today and the kind of history that um, brings us to this uh, particular point and the role that Africa has played uh, historically in world politics while, you know, uh, being treated as uh, the dark continent, uh, a continent of savages where there's no uh, civilization uh, or anything like that, and where you have these governments that, you know, these uh, foolish uh, Africans aren't able to run correctly and things like that. Meanwhile, the continent being robbed blind of its uh, uh, of uh, precious mineral resources and things like that, an incredibly rich continent 
that has been robbed for literally centuries at this point. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see this kind of activity or see the uh, lack of coverage or analysis on different issues on uh, uh, the African continent, because all of what we're discussing here is part and parcel of imperialism uh, continuing to be able to sink its teeth into uh, the lifeblood of the continent and its people. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Nefa Freeman is here as we continue. And you know, Nefa, following from our conversation about AFRICOM, I always try to connect the issue of uh, U.S. imperialism abroad with oppression here inside uh, uh, the United States. And, you know, I was looking at uh, the Black Alliance for Peace most recent uh, 1033 monthly uh, newsletter, which I encourage people to um, check out, of course, in reference to the 1033 program, uh, which signals a serious uh, militarization of police. And uh, I was surprised to find that back in July, there was a group of Democrats, I believe headed up by uh, Representative Ayanna Presley, um, who actually sent a letter to uh, Joe Biden, his administration, um, asking officials to basically stop the flow of uh, uh, military weapons uh, to the different police departments in the U.S., saying that this, uh, you know, this signals and triggers an increase uh, of police violence in general and specifically um, against black communities, which I think is uh, absolutely true. Now, I don't know how far this went, but we definitely know how much the uh, Biden administration has loved the police uh, recently uh, gave them, uh, you know, a few billion dollars and uh, wants to have 100,000 more of them on the streets of the U.S. And so I just think it's important to highlight things like this, Nefa, because, you know, in the U.S., even if we're just talking specifically uh, about black people, although I think this is true in general of people in this country, is that uh, we're we're disinclined by the messages we get from our government and the corporate press and really by all of the, uh, you know, different institutions of knowledge production that we shouldn't think of ourselves in relation to what other people are experiencing in the United States. I mean, certainly what U.S. imperialism is doing in general across the globe is largely hidden from the popular consciousness of the people of this country. But particularly when we talk about black people and uh, when we're still very much in a moment of uh, the movement for black lives, there's still, uh, you know, a, a serious struggle against racist police terror in this country. And that struggle and the way that it's being carried out and the issues it's addressing are directly connected to issues of U.S. imperialism, even if those two things aren't always sort of explicitly tied together. You know what I mean? And so for me, this is why it, it is so important to keep this 
internationalist and anti-imperialist sort of scope because I think it actually helps us better understand the oppression that we face right here. Oh, absolutely. I, I think we always say in the Black Lives for Peace that the, the AFRICOM, the program of AFRICOM and the militarization of the continent by U.S. forces by, um, and, and the 1033 program, which is that program that authorizes the Department of Defense to transfer their military, excess military equipment to the various local domestic police departments, that those two programs, 1033 and AFRICOM, are counterparts, and that they are a reflection of the, and then the 1033 program is a reflection that the, that the U.S. is still a settler colonial project. It is, a, it is an extension of Europe in terms of how it operates in the global economy and the global and the political politics of the world, and that um, it shows, it demonstrates that African people, people of African descent in this country, and of course the indigenous people who um, who really, you know, have, which should have the most sovereign, you know, rights or immediate rights to land and and, re, um, and redress, are colony colonized people. We constitute a domestic colony within the U.S. You know, uh, that that um, our relationship to the power structure, to imperialism to uh, colonialism and neocolonialism is identical in every way. It is it, it constitutes, from a political science point of view, colonization. We don't control, you know, our, you know, labor, our, our resources, and that those things are really at the behest of those who, you know, dominate the, dominate capitalism. And the 1033 program it's, it's just a whole lot. One, one we already touched on is that the um, the military, um, the defense, so-called defense contractors or the military contractors, put it that way, um, are really they're just they're producing so much and so much is being distributed that they can even afford the defense. The Department of Defense can even afford to give away excess military equipment. Right. The thing about military equipment is that. Um, for you to produce more, you gotta use it, and for people to profit off of it, it has to be used, and it has to be distributed, and it has to, be, you know, and that they they have to create the conditions for the need of military equipment. And as this country advances, and what we we often refer to as the the unsustainability of neoliberalism, the having to contain and control uh, the populations. That um, that they have to arm the police. They have to have the front, the shop troops, the class interest, like by you know all of the political class, Biden administration, Republican and Democratic Party, and then the super rich um, have to do something with the population that is increasingly demanding a different world and a better way. And to do that, they have to to hold on to what they have. Have they have the police? That's what the front line is, and that's what it. And because people want to think about it, <laughs> these military equipment has no use in terms of the petty crime that they come after people for. You know, they don't. You know, they'll put these things, they'll station stuff in people's neighborhoods, and you know, have these surveillance outposts. But when you really see it used, is when we're in the streets. Those of us who are active and we're standing up against the police, you know, killing of extrajudicial killings and brutality um, or, you know, anything. Or even if people are standing up for their rights as workers, you know, that's when the that's when stuff is pulled, when they pull it out. 
you know, we start doing the uprisings, the George Floyd uprisings, or even when, when Michael Brown was killed. That's when you see the military equipment. And that should tell us something, you know, um, because that's what that's how it's used. It's used to quell um, the class that is subjected to capitalism, imperialism. Yeah. And I appreciate sort of how you broke down how the fundamentally uh, settler colonial and imperial nature of the U.S. uh, uh, factors into that, Nefa. I mean, it bothers me when I see people using colonialism to sort of describe seemingly just about anything they don't like. Uh, there seems to be very little uh, precision in, in the way a lot of people understand that concept. But what uh, what I think it highlights is uh, a really uh, an age old issue of the question of power and self-determination for black people in the United States of America and how, you know, as long as this white supremacist capitalist state is in place, as long as that is the uh, uh, a way that things are operated here and not just in this country, but around the world, then uh, our condition here will continue. And the, the ruling class that operates this system is very aware of that. And that is precisely why we have seen both historically and up until this very day, the kind of a brutal suppression and uh, a crushing of uh, 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 black liberation movements here uh, in the U.S. and all manner of attempts at uh, uh, basically trying to snuff out these movements, both uh, uh, literally and figuratively. And I tend to think as the contradictions continue to sharpen uh, here in this country and abroad, I think we'll um, continue to see an uptick in that kind of repression. I mean, you know, if we take a step back and sort of look at how uh, there's clearly this uh, encroaching right wing attack on uh, basic democratic rights here in the U.S., talking about abortion rights and uh, voting rights and all these sorts of things. It's very basic things that we are, you know, supposed to expect to be as a normal part of the United States are under attack from the far right with absolutely no uh, fight back to speak of from the center right, speaking of the Democrats. And so uh, as such, Nefa, it seems that, you know, a lot of these dynamics that uh, the movements and revolutionaries of the past de- dealt with, um, we're still grappling with because the capitalist state is still very much in place. And so for all the different uh, rights and reforms that we could and should fight for, I feel like ultimately we do have have to address ourselves specifically to the question of capitalism because it is out of that from which all of our issues emanate. And 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 address ourselves from the position of what is the, to to we call remedy the issue of capitalism is a, is is an issue of power, you know, and that we have to see delineate who the different class interests and and also how they line up. I think it's it's, it's capitalism, but it's also white supremacy and patriarchy. So it's, it's, I mean, I would say that it's almost equally those things. And in and, and the U.S., those three things play a particular synergizing type of role, complementary role in the U.S. because of this nature of settler colonialism and 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 it being a you know extension of the, the European you know uh, paradigm and, and white supremacy and the U.S. EU NATO axis domination. There's a there's an inherent racism there. Uh, that we can't escape, and so that that also, you know, has us having to look at in all of its forms because it it, it manifests itself in so many different forms. That we have to also see the particular uh, ways that different peoples 
are subjected to capitalism, imperialism, and the class order, and and and, and how it manifests itself through racist, you know, racist things, um, and then also patriarchy, the the, the subjugation of people when it comes to uh, gender and sexuality and the dis, you know, the marginalization or exploitation of people in that regard. I'm born out of that. But I agree with you that, you know, the people and that we all have to realize that this system and the, the continuance of the insistence of, the, of this system to be the, to govern the world, to be the dominant factor in the world is actually, um, it's, I don't like to keep saying the word unsustainable because I don't know if you know it really makes it clear. Um, but it's um, it, there's an impending um, disaster that's going to happen. We, can, we haven't even talked about environmentalism, <laughs> planet now that and now climate change and all that is being exacerbated in relationship with that to capitalism, you know, and to you know, um, and so I mean the, the military is the biggest emitter of CO2 emissions in the world, you know, the militaries, and then just different things that are happening, the irrational and the reactionary nature of those who leave the world is heading the world to a disaster and that we're actually in a struggle. When we, when we struggle against capitalism and imperialism, we're actually struggling in a struggle to save the, earth, the planet, you know, and that's what this is about. And we have to see it as that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, without question, I mean, the issue of uh, climate change, you know, uh, uh, along with like the existential threat of a nuclear war and other things. I mean, these are pressing uh, uh, existential issues for the people, not only the United States, but uh, for the earth. And it's absolutely true what you're saying, Nefa, in terms of the direct connection between climate change and war, for that matter, uh, to the uh, capitalist system itself. And how this the the unchecked operation and behavior of the ruling class and the corporations that it runs and things like that were a huge factor in uh, uh, why the uh, climate is sort of uh, developing in the way that it is. So the question now, like if we were to wake up tomorrow somehow in a socialist United States uh, of uh, uh, America, then uh, uh, the question wouldn't be how do we stop climate change? It's well now what what needs to be done? How can a society be organized to grapple with uh, the consequences of the climate change brought on by capitalism itself? How are people uh, to be protected and evacuated? How can we ensure that uh, uh, people have uh, everything that they need in terms of food, in terms of clothes, in terms of the uh, necessity, uh, the bare necessities, in terms of basic safety? I mean, we can look at Cuba in this most recent hurricane, uh, where, as usual, they had this incredible uh, response to a natural disaster that they know is going to happen to them at some point every year. Imagine that. Imagine preparing something that you know is coming, not something we're used to here in the U.S. and we're able to evacuate tens of thousands of uh, people. And this is why Cuba, this small socialist island nation that is under a unilateral criminal blockade directed by the U.S., always suffers very little human loss in these uh, natural disaster situation precisely because of their socialist system. And so uh, understanding the role that uh, uh, capitalism plays and how it really is at the root of so many of these issues, it's why, you know, more and more I feel strongly that to merely espouse uh, socialist politics 
is uh, not e- enough. I mean, it's well and good and all those sorts of things. But beyond that, we, we really have to be uh, mobilizing to really fight for and build a, 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 a revolution here in the U.S. to bring about a situation of socialism. We really do need a socialist reconstruction of the United States, really to finish the work of the other two periods of reconstruction in the United States, uh, uh, both of which were scuttled by, you know, this this brutal, racist, uh, uh, capitalist state. And, you know, we've said on the show before many times, because it's true that the way things are developing in a number of ways, we really only have two choices. We will either have a socialist revolution in the United States or we will have societal collapse. And that may sound extreme uh, uh, to people who hear that. But once we understand that the ruling class, this wealthy minority, uh, uh, are the ones in charge uh, right now, are a big part of the ones trying to drive us into oblivion and seeing that if things remain in their hands, if they only get worse, well, then there's only one choice left. And that's if we ourselves take our destiny into our own hands, seize the time and uh, uh, really fight and push for not just uh, reforms within this system, but for an entirely new system completely. I mean, it it, it really does feel in this moment that there isn't another uh, solution that could really be called realistic. And see, this is why uh, uh, anti-communism is uh, basically uh, an unofficial religion here in the United States and why, you know, the the real cancel culture was aimed at socialism and communism uh, uh, in the United States to keep the kind of thing that I'm describing from happening and becoming a real force. That's why we uh, that's why there had to be a red scare. That's why people had to be jailed, assassinated, hounded out of their jobs. I mean, just have their lives uh, totally upended uh, by all of this. It was all part and parcel of the ruling class of the capitalists trying to protect themselves from the elements that really threaten their power. And what are the elements that really threaten their power? Was it tweets? No. Was it Twitch streams? No. It was the threat and the fear of the organized militant class conscious masses of poor working and oppressed people here in the U.S. Organization always has been and always will be our sharpest weapon against the ruling class. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Nefa Freeman, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.